Welcome to the panel discussion, National Preparedness, Countermeasures to Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear, and Explosive Threats, sponsored by Battelle. Here's today's moderator, Tom Timmon. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are C.J. Johnson, Assistant Director of the Product Acquisition and Deployment Directorate at the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. Dr. John Fisher is Director of the Chemical and Biological Defense Division at the Homeland Security Advanced Research Projects Agency. Major General Richard Gallant, Commander of the Joint Task Force Civil Support at U.S. Northern Command. Jay Tilden is Associate Administrator and Deputy Undersecretary for Counterterrorism and Counterproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration, and Matt Shaw, Vice President and General Manager for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear and Explosive Defense at Battelle. Gentlemen, good to have you all here. And let's start with uh, what your agencies are doing these days. Give us a, just an overview of the programs. Uh, and before we get to that, though, I want to just maybe set the scene for what is going on in the Cyberni world. And Matt, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Tom. So um, I guess I would set the stage by uh, defining an acronym that I learned. Uh, uh, it was an acronym coined uh, early after the Cold War ended when we had a very specific uh, threat against us. and. And this term VUCA, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. So I think uh, when we define this uh, environment that we're living in, the VUCA acronym as well. So I think volatility, you can certainly look around the world. You know, we've got rogue actors uh, from North Korea. We've got, um, you know, Islamic types of terrorist organization in Al-Qaeda and ISIS. You've got lone wolf. So you've got a very... Uh, volatile situation. Um, uncertainty, uh, we don't know what those folks will do. We see lots of um, uh, uncertainty in, in the types of uh, tactics they take. They continuously evolved uh, to counter um, our defenses against them, so it's a very uncertain environment. And specifically on, on my side and maybe on some of my peers' side, uh, the uncertain budget requirement is still uh, something that bogs us down a bit. We don't know what to plan for in the future. We don't know what to invest in because of that uncertainty. Complex, I think we could all agree that uh, this threat space is incredibly complex. Not only are we dealing with um, the same chemical and biological agents from World War I, World War II, the anthrax, the sarin, the VX, but uh, this world with next generation threats, the evolving technologies to make those threats uh, potentially even worse. So it's a very complex environment. We need to be uh, able to combat that complexity. And then uh, the ambiguity, you know, that's just basically a state of where there's more than one, uh, more than one meaning for certain things. So I think about the use of dual use technologies and how, you know, there are some very good purposes for nuclear, uh, obviously nuclear power and things. There's some very good purposes for gene editing in, in making um, better food supplies um, and for better health but there's also the nefarious sides of those things. So it's a very ambiguous environment as well. So that might help set the stage for the, the environment we're living in. Okay, so each of the different agencies has a different perspective on this, has different domains that you're responsible for in our ultimate add up of our public life. And so maybe if you would talk about what your program is all about and what you see as the major threats right now, uh, we can go that way. Why don't we start with you, General Gallant? Great. And first of all, Tom, thanks for hosting the forum here. I think it, just the fact that we're all here together shows how important this is. And I, I think uh, Matt correctly identified or framed up the operational environment for us, VUCA. You know, and certainly in, in the Department of Defense <coughs> at the senior service colleges, we've been using that term for going on 20 years now. But if anything that we all can agree is true, is it getting more so? You know, the threat streams have certainly been increasing now. My responsibility is in the response side of the of the picture here as, a, as the commander of Joint Task Force Civil Support. We are the Department of Defense's only standing joint task force that would have to respond to a chemical, biological, nuclear, radiological attack against the homeland here. So, you know, the, the big things that we're working on, we work with our interagency partners here as they develop the situation and analyze it and prioritize the threat streams, but we're constantly focused on focusing on improving the relationships that we have with our interagency partners, making sure that we know where the gaps are with the states, the governors, the local responders, so that we can provide that critical life-saving support at the, at the time of need. 
So in a way that echoes the larger Northern Command responsibility. Uh, absolutely, Tom. We are, we are General Robinson, the commander of North Coms, and the Department of Defense single asset that when the capabilities of the, the states, the communities are exhausted, they can go to the Department of Defense and say, hey, we have a trained professional element that can provide this response. Okay, and Dr. Fisher, HS ARPA. Thank you. My specific organization was, resides within a science and technology director within Homeland Security, and it was created several years ago in direct response to the Marathrax letters of 2001. And we specifically pay attention to our chemical and biological threats, potential threats to the homeland civilian populations. And the overall goals of my organization are to understand the threat, detect the threat, and then respond accordingly. Work very closely with law enforcement and the intelligence communities to understand what potential threats may be coming our way, and then develop technologies and deploy technologies which would detect that specific threat should it be ever deployed. And then accordingly, there's a last step is respond if something ever were to happen. Fortunately, nothing has happened since the Amerithrax letters, so that speaks very highly of the, the outstanding work that law enforcement, especially the FBI, are doing in this trade space. We pay very close attention to what may be accessible to terrorists and how terrorists could potentially use these types of agents against the American population. So things that we leverage um, extensively are rather than duplicate what's already going on with the U.S. government, we rely very heavily on technologies that are being developed by the, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency within the Department of Defense. So for example, for the past several years, we've had chemical detectors deployed throughout um, areas in New York City and New Jersey. And we support very closely um, the Office of Health Affairs within DHS, the, the BioWatch program, which is the only deployed system out there that actually looks for aerosolized biological threats against the American population. Work very closely with um, large cities such as New York and then also within DHS, Office of Health Affairs, to look at next generation technologies to shorten our response time, um, improve our detection rates, and also improve the rapid identification of any agents which may be deployed. And then also working with FBI as far as forensics, if something ever were to happen, and also the EPA to clean up if something ever were to happen. So it's a very broad portfolio. Um, we rely very heavily on other government agencies. Um, and also, not only the federal government, also get down to the state and local levels as well. So there's a theme emerging here. There's a lot of interagency, both horizontally in the federal government and also vertically with state local governments that uh, creates almost a fabric of defense if Correct. we will, from an organizational standpoint. And Jay, at the NSA, it's all about the nuclear stockpile, or not all about it, but largely about that. So perfect. <clears throat> so I will start with a little bit about how, you know, how do you couch this threat. So the government is always asked to do the hard ones, right? But it's important that we balance um, what is the risk, right? Uh, what's the risk of nuclear war, of terrorism, let alone nuclear terrorism? And to put it in perspective, you know, uh, the, the lifetime risk of a U.S. citizen dying from a terrorist act worldwide, anywhere, is about 1 in 45,000, okay? Uh, whereas the likelihood of us dying from murder is 1 in 250, and in a motor vehicle accident is 1 in 113, and dying from heart disease or cancer is 1 in 7. So it is important that when we communicate and talk about these things that we try to like be very uh, uh, rational and reasonable. So that being said, NNSA has a mission. What is its mission? We maintain the nuclear deterrent. So deter, deter acts of uh, nuclear attacks, things of that sort, that is one of the things we do with our Department of Defense colleagues. We maintain the nuclear stockpile, the nuclear deterrent. The next thing we do is we try to play that far game to prevent. We want to prevent nuclear material going loose. We want to prevent other people's, uh, other people's devices from getting out of control. And we want to prevent nuclear uh, terrorism, uh, terrorists going after nuclear materials. So we do a lot internationally trying to lock down those materials. And then like, like our DNDO colleagues here, Domestic Nuclear Detection Office colleagues, overseas we also provision uh, both land-based at ports and land-based at um, at uh, cross-border points, um, portal detection system to detect nuclear materials that may be on the, on the move. 
Um, we also train Customs and Border. I think we've trained about 12,000 Customs and Border officials over the last, say, 10 years. We've installed over almost 700 of these portal detection systems and deployed another 120 or so mobile. All in the idea of preventing material from getting out of regulatory control and getting into the hands of nefarious actors. Um, my office is, uh, so it's kind of similar to General Gallant. Uh, Gallant. Um, um, we provide the nation's technical support for understanding a radiological or nuclear event. So um, we have scientists, engineers at our national labs that will actually help the National Mission Force and the DOD, uh, and this is just the other side of where the general would take over. We're trying to prevent that event just on the other side of a boom of some type. Uh, we also have a public health and safety mission um, where we uh, have radiological assistance program teams at most of our major operating locations around the country, and they actually actively interact with state and locals when a radiological source gets loose, when uh, something gets in, a lot, you know, something gets into uh, a waste stream and is mishandled, and then we have some people who may have been exposed. Believe it or not, there's a lot of things in the industrial sector, and we worry about that. So that's kind of how we are uh, postured to, to worry about uh, the threats. Okay, and uh, CJ, does that leave any room for the domestic nuclear <laughs> well, actually, detection office? You know what's great is about everybody here on the table we have some interaction with. I think what you're seeing, Tom, is that uh, this is a whole of government problem uh, to, to work. Uh, the domestic nuclear detection office uh, specifically was stood up uh, actually about 12 years ago. We just uh, celebrated our 12th uh, birthday, so we're fairly young, but we have a, a pretty big mission. The uh, presidential directive that actually stood up the organization uh, had us focusing exclusively on uh, preventing uh, radiological and nuclear terrorism. Uh, so our, our focus is primarily left of boom, as we like to say, before an actual attack trying to prevent. Um, we do that by focusing on two major program areas within uh, the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. The first uh, is primarily uh, preventing with uh, radiological and nuclear detection capabilities, um, and that's uh, in support of our global nuclear detection architecture, uh, which I'll talk about at some point uh, this morning, I'm sure. Uh, we also focus on forensics, uh, nuclear technical nuclear forensics capabilities, uh, being able to deter, as uh, Jay was just talking about, an adversary based upon the ability to attribute uh, the source of the mm -hmm. material of concern that was used in a, uh, a WMD event. Uh, we have four primary program areas or threads within DNDO. The first focuses on continuous improvement and innovation in the detection capabilities, actually putting better capability in the hands of the operators who are out there trying to encounter and detect the presence of nuclear or radiological materials. Uh, we deploy a number of different types of systems. Um, uh, we try to keep the adversary guessing by using mobile capabilities like our mobile detection deployment unit that will show up at uh, big events like uh, Super Bowl or NASCAR. Uh, and we'll uh, work with the state and local partners to train on the spot and disperse those equipment items to improve the capability and the likelihood of encounter and detection if there is a challenge. We also focus on something called a layered defense posture. And uh, Jay mentioned this a little bit and some of the others as well. Very interagency in our focus, but in our defense in depth, our layered uh, defense strategy, what we do is we work very closely with the international community, but we also build out the federal capability um, exclusively within DHS, but also in an interagency way, putting capability out to augment and fill out our global nuclear detection architecture. We then look interior to the United States, working with the state and local partners, uh, building capacity and capability there. And all these things work together to actually make it difficult for the adversary to be able to acquire the capabilities, but then also to be able to transport and ship them and put them in play uh, in an event. Our goal ultimately is to, we say it in two ways, to make it hard uh, and to make them pay, right? So make it hard by making, putting up barriers, 
to, the, to be able to access and to utilize and to transport those items, but then through attribution to be able to make them pay if there is a, a way of determining, if there is something used, we determine what the source is and hold accountable those individuals. So I want to also maybe point out there's an international element to this. We talked about the internal, but there are other countries that have nuclear materials, and some of them, I guess we would worry about their capability of controlling it and regulating it to the extent the United States does. Yes. So, uh, in fact, uh, I think you heard, the, the, let's start with this idea of how do you detect what's going on. So the global nuclear detection architecture is a layer of the uh, kind of the onions, right? Um, so um, we provision uh, international friends and allies, partner countries with the same detection equipment uh, that, that DNDO is provisioning here in the States. And oftentimes, now there is no requirement for these countries to tell us if anything goes off. But if you build the relationship right, they're going to tell you. Um, but uh, absolutely, one could suggest that uh, the nature of the threat is an abiding one because the amount of nuclear, when the nuclear rage started, we had enough for two bombs. Uh, now, the civil nuclear fuel cycle, you have hundreds of metric tons around the world. All right, on that uh, optimistic note, we're going to take a short break here and get back to some of the technologies, perhaps, that are involved here. My guests today are Jay Tilden, Associate Administrator and Deputy Undersecretary for Counterterrorism uh, and Counterproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration. And Matt Shaw is Vice President and General Manager for Cyberni at the Battelle Memorial Institute. Major General Richard Gallant is Commander of the Joint Task Force Civil Support at U.S. Northern Command. Dr. John Fisher, Director of the Chemical and Biological Defense Division at the Homeland Security Advanced Research Projects Agency, and C.J. Johnson, Assistant Director of the Product Acquisition and Deployment Directorate at the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is National Preparedness, Countermeasures to Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear, and Explosive Threats, sponsored by Battelle, here on federalnewsradio.com and Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Listen, do you hear that? That's the sound of an anthrax attack. It's completely silent. This is the sound of scientists at Battelle in the lab creating a vaccine that saves lives, stopping biological weapons. With Battelle, it can be done. Learn more at battelle.org forward slash vaccine. Welcome back to the panel discussion, National Preparedness, Countermeasures to Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear, and Explosive Threats, sponsored by Battelle here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are C.J. Johnson, Assistant Director of the Product Acquisition and Deployment Directorate at the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. Dr. John Fisher is Director of the Chemical and Biological Defense Division at the Homeland Security Advanced Research Projects Agency. Major General Richard Gallant, he's commander of the Joint Task Force Civil Support at U.S. Northern Command. Jay Tilden, Associate Administrator and Deputy Undersecretary for Counterterrorism and Counterproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration. And Matt Shaw, he is Vice President and General Manager for Cyberni at Mattel. And let's uh, talk about some of the technologies in this segment that are enable the government and its partners at the federal, state, international, local level to know what's going on. And I think we've probably come a long way since the science fiction movie days of Geiger counters with little probes on the end. And so, Matt, why don't you give us the overview of some of the technological advances, current capabilities, not just nuclear, but also the other parts of the Cyberni uh, acronym. So at, at Battelle, anyway, our common denominator is really trying to understand the science and technology that underlies the, the threats, the chemical and biological threats specifically in our, in our business and how those uh, underlying technologies enable those, those threats. So we strive to understand the how they work and not and of course we want to invest in making those things work for the good of, of mankind as I discussed previously, but um, you know, putting our black hats on, we want to understand what, what bad guys might want to do with these things. And so understanding that science and technology and combining that with, with engineering, with process and training, we uh, work for, for many of these folks on my panel here, um, ver doing various things for them. Some of the common um, 
areas that we're trying to work on, uh, of course, is you know making detectors, uh, protection systems, and those types of things, you know, lighter, faster, cheaper, those types of things. And of course, they have to really work against these uh, myriad threats that we're talking about here. Um, in the detec detection space specifically, um, and specifically in biodetection, I think Dr. Fisher could certainly weigh in on this, but um, one of the big problems in the past has been just how much money uh, some of these detection systems cost in the field, not only to, you know, to buy them initially, but what that entire life cycle costs. So that's one of the main uh, things we have been addressing over the past couple years. Um, another thing that we uh, invest in includes uh, those types of detection systems or other systems that will combat multiple threat types. So too many times we, you know, focus a detection system on a single uh, agent or a class of agents, but we need to be smarter than that and develop those types of systems that can mm -hmm. can look at um, and detect volatile, non-volatile, chem, bio types of threats. So that's, you know, we're not there yet, but that's an area in the future that so we're investing in. a Swiss Army knife approach to that's, a, a detector. That's a, a good way of, of looking at that. Um, and the other thing that we invest in is really just that speed to decision. So. Um, how quickly, once you uh, discover a material, how quickly can you identify it, characterize it, and then do something with it? And if it's a combio type of thing, how eliminate it? Um, so an analogy that uh, some of my friends in the, on the DOD side use is, uh, is um, you know, 10 years ago, if we wanted to go someplace, what would you do? You'd get out a map, you might call a friend, all these things, but what do you do today? You have an app on your phone, right? Uh, Waze or something like that that, you know, I can type in where I want to go. It's going to tell me how ba best to get there. It's going to pull information from myriad sources, right? And it's going to tell me how best to get there, what route to take, what routes to avoid. Uh, if something happens in route, avoid that spot. That's what we need more or less on the ChemBio battlefield or on the on the homeland side as well just better decision tools better decision aids not that a computer is going to make the decision for uh, the commander but give them the right information so they can make the best decisions those are the, in a in broad categories those are the types of things that that uh, Battelle is investing in and uh, think that that's where the future needs to go but there is an industrial base that is capable in these different areas because when you're talking about the various areas of detection each one is almost a discipline in and of itself in terms of chemistry and, and, uh, and equipment. Yeah, and to get to, uh, to integrate those so that you get, as I was saying, you know, you don't want a detection system that only looks for a certain agent or agents. And you need those detection systems to be able to adapt to add new agents if there's a new SARS or if there's a new, new bird flu, you want to be able to look at that. You don't want to have to go out and a year later have antibodies developed and all this wet chemistry approach. You want to have technologies that can uh, adapt to the new threats, the evolving threats. Okay, and I guess the Northern Command has done exercises with some of this gear, and so there's a big training component that yeah, goes exactly. along with Battelle it. Yeah, Battelle has done uh, quite a bit of uh, work to help train uh, with our subject matter experts, uh, various uh, National Guard, uh, the CSTs, the uh, HERFs, and those, those units, uh, NORTHCOM, et cetera. Um, we did an exercise that uh, General Gallant might remember called uh, Vista Proximity. Uh, you might want to say a little about that, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Tom, I, I think it's a, a critical subject here because, you know, my, my question every day is how do I provide the right response with the right force and the right expertise, right? Because I have to leverage the capabilities and the technology of industry and the interagency. So I need to continually watch what they're doing, what they're developing that can help me uh, become lighter, faster, more in interoperable, and more capable because that's what I owe the interagency. When, when we're called to respond, we need to be able to, to get there as quick as we can and save as many lives as, as possible. And so we have to work together. And, and one of the ways we do that is through a continuous exercise program and Vista Proximity. You know, after a couple years ago when we had a, a, a strain of the bird flu uh, come in at Northern Command, we realized, hey, our, our bio response was not all that fleshed out. So we needed to develop, you know, a, a better plan on how as an interagency we would respond to a, a bio incident like that. And and we're not just doing with with biological, it's chemical, it's nuclear. In the past six months we had our, our major national tier one exercise nested with 
FEMA was Arden Century, Northcom Arden Century, and, and we worked through a 10 kiloton debt in the New York region. And only by looking at something like that, which is going to produce massive effects that are going to overwhelm the local responders, the state responders, and you're going to need a whole of government response to something like that. That's how we get after providing that right response with the right force and right expertise. And just and a detail, how do you simulate in an exercise something like a 10 kiloton, a, a kiloton detonation? Oh, it, it, you know, we leverage the capabilities of the interagency and industry, and there's simulation models. You know, we work extensively with DITRA, with the Department of Energy, to simulate those things. And, and the modeling they do can replicate that. And, and we don't just do it in a DOD bubble. We work with the state of New York, the state of New Jersey, you know, federal emergency, all the regions of FEMA, so everyone understands what they're having to respond to. Because my critical, one of my critical questions is, okay, you know, we have come a long way as a nation in the last 15 years. You know, as, as the FEMA administrator Fugate used to say, it's not your grandfather's FEMA anymore. He brought it along tremendously. So there's, there's increased capability regionally, locally, at, at each state. So we need to identify where those gaps are. You know, how does the Department of Defense, the big DOD, how do we inject the right capacity, the right capability to augment you know, the response that's already capable of, of responding. Got it. Okay. And John, at, at Science and Technology Directorate and especially at uh, HS ARPA, what are some of the things you're looking at, funding, maybe making your own bets on with respect to these future technological capabilities that might be needed in this whole evolving Suburney area? Right now, one of our big emphasis areas is looking at chemical detection in civilian environments. So, as I said before, we do not develop unique technologies because there's so much work going on already within the Department of Defense. We do our best to leverage the technologies that they are developing. The challenge we have is that technologies developed for a military environment don't necessarily work in a civilian environment. So, for example, you it can't. That would be the other way around. One would think. But for example, things we've learned from testing is that a chemical detector, which would work really well in a military field, um, is set off by cleaning solvents. So there might be an enclosure where a janitor passes by with an open bottle of cleaning solvent and it will set the detector and off. Clearing out a metro station. Then we clean out the metro station. So what we have done is taken what we call an orthogonal approach. So we take two different types of detectors, put them into one box, and try to have one confirm the other. There are still some challenges with that, so we have a ways to go, but that's one of our big areas of emphasis, so we are slowly but surely making progress. On the biological side, the, the systems that we have deployed right now, they work very, very well. The issue we're trying to address is time to respond. So, for example, we're right now looking at new technologies which are called biological triggers. So, systems that collect large amounts of air and do a very crude analysis of samples that are collected. All that tells us is that there's something biological present, it doesn't tell us what, but it reduces our response time by hours. Mm -hmm. So, if we know that there's something present, we can do a confirmation analysis to determine if there's something threatening there or not. So, looking at that to probably be deployed operationally within the next two to three years. Yeah, so speed, and then, then you've got time to figure out what it is, but if you can clear out the people or right. clear out the area, then you're, you're that much ahead of the, the game. The accuracy are important, and, and false alarms are not a good thing, so right. minimize those as much as we can. Got it. And in the NSA area, so I'm going to be a little contrarian and start off with uh, an we example. Still yeah, we still Actually, that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it. So first off, if you were to give me $100, or I guess in government speak, $100 million more dollars, I would probably only put 15 or 20 of that towards new technologies because ultimately at the point that a technology detects nuclear material, detects the release of something, if it's, if it's a malevolent act, you've already, you've already missed it and you're already playing the catch-up game, right? So what our intelligence community, law enforcement, customs and border protection folks, not just ours, our close allies, that is absolutely as critical as anything we can do with widgets. Because at the end of the day, going back to where we started with this little conversation, 
largely speaking, nuclear detection technologies uh, have, you know, they've slowly gotten better over time, but they are still fundamentally the same mm -hmm. as they have been for a while. Um, and then the next thing, which is, and I'm not going to delve into the domestic, so you'll be able to have plenty, CJ, to talk about. The next thing, though, is that as we proliferate this, these uh, equipment, this equipment around the world, um, it's actually just as important to make sure that the people who are using that equipment understand it. And then, how do they understand what the spectra is? What does the reading say? Some of this equipment says yes and no. Some of the equipment actually tells you what it is uh, if you look at this spectrum. So the department um, provides for the government and for our international partners a 24-7 capability called triage. Mm -hmm. um, basically, um, any uh, competent authority uh, in the states um, as well as overseas can send the spectra to us and within 30 minutes um, we will tell them do they have a threat or don't they have a threat and what is it from the material perspective. Um, about technologies and strategies kind of going forward, it's clear that any nuclear detection technologies need to be nested in a system of systems. Um, we are looking at how do we improve the algorithms, how do we improve the ability to characterize. Um, wide area detection of nuclear material remains very difficult. Uh, we are act. We are you looking mean at wide area. You mean stuff meaning, that might have been scattered. Well, meaning like or? if you're trying to, I mean, you know, if you're trying to like really cover a broad area of things, generally speaking, nuclear detection systems um, tend to have to be in close proximity to those materials. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the radiological materials absolutely uh, will will send up a huge signal. They'll scream if they're outside of their protective shielding. If they're inside their protective shielding, it's pretty hard. Um, we are looking at some game-changing technologies. Active interrogation is one of them. And again, active interrogation means you, you kind of energize the material. So the problem with that is you don't want anyone standing in the way while you're energizing material, right? So it has to be a very controlled setting. Uh, we're also looking at the use of what we call esoteric radiation, so muons, things that's already here. The, the problem with muons is while the technology is, I think, quickly moving forward, it does require a pretty long loiter time. Right, so you wouldn't be able to set something up on the side of the road, if you will, because things are moving by too quick. But anyway, those are two areas that we're kind of looking at. Our R&D, we have been lucky, our R&D budgets have been pretty healthy, uh, and uh, we're continuing to explore those areas. And we do that in close collaboration with our DHS colleagues, first and foremost. So. Yeah, I imagine domestically you have nuclear material that might be weapons related at some level, but there's also a lot of nuclear material in medicine and other areas. Sure that must come into the equation, especially domestically. That's a great point. Um, you know, Jay did a great job of talking about the state of the technology today and the fact that there's not been a lot of changes. One of the things that a lot of people don't think about with respect to um, DNDO but also DHS is we're balancing security but also stream of commerce, right? So a lot of the detection that's taking place, uh, the preventive detection that's taking place, is taking place at seaports of entry, land border crossings, and things of that nature. So we want to try to keep the nation safe, but you don't want to slow down uh, licit stream of commerce. So we want to be uh, accurate. Um, we've heard some discussions on the ChemBio side about not having high false alarm rates that slows things down because it requires additional inspections. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be fast. You want to be rapid and accurate with respect to detecting something that is of concern. And Jay's folks are absolutely great uh, when we do detect something and we get the spectral data, we'll use triage, we'll actually send that spectra back and they'll tell us what we have. Uh, we primarily use two types of equipment. Our large-scale systems, you'll see them at ports of entry, our radiation portal monitors, they're big fixed uh, radiation detection systems and they're used primarily to scan vehicles that are coming into the U.S. but also um, cargo and cargo containers that are coming off ships at sea ports of entry. Um, those systems primarily are looking for gamma, they're passive detection, they're looking for gamma emissions coming off of cargo, for example, or uh, neutrons um, that will tell us something else. And so um, what we're trying to do now is move towards more spectroscopic systems that give us a better sense of the type of isotopes that we have. 
uh, that gives us some indication right away. And then we, of course, send that spectral data to reach back through the triage process that Jay talked about. And the smaller systems that we have are human portable systems that the uh, operators carry, and they provide uh, more uh, ubiquitous capabilities in the field to do more tripwire capabilities so that we tech detect things well in the process of doing uh, traditional law enforcement activities. But also, we are seeing an advent of multi-mission, multi-capable systems where you have a small portable device that you wear that does detection in a tripwire fashion, but also it does identification to tell you what type of isotope you're dealing with. So it may be somebody that just had a procedure, medical procedure, and the isotope that shows up tells you that they just had some type of a treatment and they're okay to pass, right? So it's important to be able to give that capability to the operator so they're more effective in protecting us, but also allowing the, appro the appropriate stream of commerce flow, but also immigration flow. All right, so a lot of considerations, a lot of different type of gear. We're going to take a break on that note. My guests today are Matt Shaw, Vice President and General Manager for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear and Explosives Defense at Battelle Memorial Institute. Jay Tilden is Associate Administrator and Deputy Undersecretary for Counterterrorism, Counterproliferation at the, nuclear, the National Nuclear Security Administration. Major General Richard Gallant is Commander of Joint Task Force Civil Support at U.S. Northern Command. Dr. John Fisher is Director of the Chemical and Biological Defense Division at the Homeland Security Advanced Research Projects Agency. And C.J. Johnson, Assistant Director of the Product Acquisition and Deployment Directorate at the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is National Preparedness for Countermeasures to Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear and Explosive Threats, sponsored by Battelle, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Listen, do you hear that? That's the sound of an anthrax attack. It's completely silent. This is the sound of scientists at Battelle in the lab creating a vaccine that saves lives, stopping biological weapons. With Battelle, it can be done. Learn more at battelle.org forward slash vaccine. Welcome back to our panel discussion, National Preparedness, Countermeasures to Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear and Explosive Threats, sponsored by Battelle, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Major General Richard Gallant, Commander of the Joint Task Force Civil Support at U.S. Northern Command. Jay Tilden is Associate Administrator and Deputy Undersecretary for Counterterrorism and Counterproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration. Matt Shaw is Vice President and General Manager for Saberni at Battelle Memorial Laboratories. C.J. Johnson, Assistant Director of the Product Acquisition and Deployment Directorate at the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. And Dr. John Fisher, Director of the Chemical and Biological Defense Division at the Homeland Security Advanced Research Projects Agency. And so let's talk about some of the uh, activities that happen when there is a threat and how things swing into action and how the interaction occurs between the federal government, in this case the military, because we're going to start with you, General Gallant, and state and local officials, governors, and so forth. Hey, Tom, uh, great question. And in the last segment, we talked a little bit about some of the training that we're doing. And I think we have to just touch on that again, because if you're not training these through these scenarios continuously, you will stumble when it comes time to response. So, you know, I talked about some of the training, nested training that we do with the federal agencies, whether it's FEMA, DHHS, Center for Disease Control, whoever may be the lead federal agency. You know, and it's different in the homeland here because the Department of Defense, U.S. NORTHCOM, JTFCS, my unit, we would always be in support. So you start with, we have to understand the language of whatever you know agency we're working with. Tip, we we use the national response framework. That's how we organize so that we can and we build those relationship. So relationships. So when something like that happens, you know all the clutter of the ambiguity, the confusion about languages, acronyms, etc., is gone. We know how they operate. And we operate on their terms. So to do that, we've established a couple things that, you know. Department of Defense we all recognize is big and in some cases very lumbering, right? And we 
and we sometimes can't get out of our own way. And all the community, all the governor wants is a unity of effort to meet whatever response it is. So the Department of Defense has developed a concept called the dual status commander. So we talked about how the res all responses are local. So the first responders get in there, the state employs their extensive and growing response capabilities, and then once that capability, that capacity is exceeded, they would, the governor would request, would request up to the president to have a federal response. And if it was determined that Department of Defense was the right agency to go to, it would come down through Department of Defense to Northern Command, you know, in a, in a mm -hmm. sea burn incident to JTFCS. It sounds cumbersome, but it because we train it, because we exercise it, it is very expeditious. If something really bad was to happen, I monitor it. 24 hours a day I, and I'm on a two-hour string my headquarters so if something happened I bring everyone in my headquarters and we could get on airplanes within four hours and then the, the phone calls and the you know verbal orders would come to get me to a response as quick as possible now once we are there we are integrated with the local responders the state responders and a and a framework that we've st set up is called a dual status commander so it one person could lead the entire Department of Defense response because we don't want to get into confusion about National Guardsmen, active duty members, because in the end, nobody cares, right? They just want unity of effort response because these are our families, these are our neighbors. So we just want a unified effort providing the response that's required to whoever requested the response from the Department of Defense. And briefly, do national security events like inaugurations, Super Bowls, that kind of thing, where you know in advance what is going to happen, uh, is that a good training ground for this yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, great point, Tom, actually. And every NNSC, you know, these events were constantly providing, you know, I have you know, Department of Defense experts, all the military people that have, you know, the biologists, the nuclear physicists, they're in my command. I, they've worked for all the other interagencies. So they're there in all of these events. There's typically a dual status commander I mentioned set up to lead any potential Department of Defense response effort for consequence management. We would augment those staffs to provide any seaburn related expertise that could be required. And it's a great training opportunity for us also. Okay. So I think uh, it's a great segue here because we, uh, we interact on the same exercises, Vital, Archer, uh, Ardent, Century, or Gotham Shield, depending. Um, those are just uh, kind of the examples of national level exercises where the whole of government comes together to respond to an event. So we basically split out our responses in two ways. It, one is crisis response, generally it's, if it's a counterterrorism event or a nuclear terrorism event. Um, and if it's not inside the continental United States, we support other elements of the DOD, and we have a small element called the Joint Technical Operations Team. That is also, you'll hear a common theme here, M plus four, so notification plus four hours that has to be out the door. What do we do is we send a small team forward uh, to advise our DOD colleagues, but we basically rely on secure comms back to our national laboratories. Um, where we can actually get into the depth of expertise about a radiological or nuclear incident. Um, when it comes to major public events, we're all in the same boat together. When it comes to the, uh, the inauguration, the Pope's visit, the Super Bowl, that is a whole of government. And depending on who's lead, FBI sometimes is the lead, Secret Service sometimes, DHS, uh, and DHS is always there, we deploy as a team. And it is both great. It is both a deterrent activity it is also a training event, and it is also, I think, really there for to make sure nothing untowards happens. Uh, when it comes to the public health and safety side, things get a bit reversed in that DOE is always supporting federal agencies, but when it comes to a public health and safety event, we quickly, like most of the federal government, we shift to supporting whoever the state and local is. So if we had a radiological release because of a fire or a facility or something, uh, we actually have uh, aerial assets very quickly that could deploy to understand if there's a plume, an actual release, with our, with our DHS colleagues and depending on the size, our DOD colleagues, we could deploy ground teams to understand what happens as well. Um, we stand up the Federal Radiological Monitoring and Assessment Center where EPA, DHS, we all come together to try to understand what just happened and what is the ground truth on data. 
and we also have um, a, a supercomputing facility out in Livermore called NARAC, that's the National Atmospheric Release Assessment Capability, where we can actually model all the weather for all of this stuff. Um, so uh, it is interesting how many interactions we all have around the table for something that we know will quickly overwhelm a state and local, uh, you know, authority. So, all right. And uh, I wanted to ask CJ, in the acquisition end, sometimes you have to act quickly. That's correct. And so, what if the hotline goes off? Do you have contracting activities? Sure. Do you have mechanisms in place? That's a great question. You know, we just exercised this uh, in a tabletop exercise and talked about this very issue. Uh, I, I think what Jay would probably tell you and some others at the table is that if we actually have credible uh, intelligence queuing about an inbound nuclear threat, you're talking hours, days, um, and you're probably not going to procure something in that environment to actually uh, protect, defend, um, the, uh, the nation, what we're going to wind up doing is reallocating resources that are on hand and available. And so it's more of a logistics uh, exercise at that point. But there are many elements of DNDO that are working within the interagency. In a situation like that, pre-boom, uh, FBI, for example, could be the lead in a Rad Nuke uh, search operation or RENZO, mm -hmm. and we would be supporting, we would be providing support to the secretary as he's advising and supporting the president. But we provide things like uh, forensic support. We provide um, support uh, working with Jay's guys. Uh, we'll deploy our mobile detection and deployment unit, and his uh, RAP team folks will actually help man that that unit to help provide uh, more on-scene capability and those support operations. So it is very much a whole-of-government scenario, and we all work very closely together to make it successful. Okay, and John and Matt, I wanted to ask you two about some of the uh, industrial-based support for all of this, because you're probably not in the main line of response there at DHS, and, and Matt, maybe after that you can talk about some of what you see as the budgetary programmatic issues facing government as a whole. But John, uh, yeah, let's go to John uh, Fisher from uh, HS ARPA, and uh, how, how do you look forward to in the industrial base to kind of make sure the pipeline is where it needs to be for what capabilities might be needed down the line? There are several facets to that. So, for example, our best example of working with industry is we have over the past several years at Dugway Proving Ground, we've done some series a series of large scale re releases of chlorine gas. So the reason we're interested in that is because in this country we transport huge quantities of chlorine every day on our interstate highways and through rail cars and such. So what we discovered over, um, over the past several years is that the first responder community simply does not have data on what would happen if a large scale release of chlorine were to happen in a civilian environment. So working with, for example, the Chlorine Institute along with Defense Threat Reduction Agency, other industrial partners, and foreign governments, including Canada, we've done some series of tests where we've actually explosively released large quantities of chlorine, got a lot of data, which then we pass over to our first responder community, which then in turn, they prepare, they plan, so in case something of that nature were to happen. Far from settlements. Uh, we do it at Dugway Proving Ground, and <laughs> it's very remote and all environmentally compliant. Interesting. So, yeah, so that, that's another, the transportation aspect of it then is something that I guess the bridge to the larger issue Absolutely. is the transportation materials and we see trains going through towns all the time and truck caravans and nobody knows what's in those graffiti covered rusty tanks. So across a broad spectrum of technologies, we actually provide a lot of information, test data and such to the industrial base so that they can in turn um, advance their products for other civilian applications. Interesting. And Matt, I wanted to ask you about, from the outside of government standpoint, what the whole budgetary funding uh, issue looks like in terms of what's needed for protecting the country in the Suburney world. Sure. So certainly over the past uh, decade, uh, we've seen uh, the priorities of DOD and others sort of uh, shift away from ChemBio and uh, as a result of uh, the ChemBio Defense Program out of DOD uh, has taken significant hits in their budgets and of course that affects uh, not only the government labs and the government's um, own workforce but the industrial base. Um, there's um, fewer opportunities for us, there's fewer, I mentioned earlier about the uncertainty in budget really having a negative effect on 
what should we be investing in for the future? Um, is there going to be any payoff in the end? So, you know, in our capitalistic environment, uh, industry wants to know what's the payoff going to be, and if, if we can't see that there's going to be a payoff, um, you know, yeah, we like to be good guys and be doing the right thing, but we also have to uh, uh, pay our workforce mm -hmm. and also as the budgets have declined in DOD and in DHS, um, I guess, you know, we've got these myriad concerns on the technology side. We've got, um, you know, things like uh, drug delivery technologies that are advancing because of the positive nature of those things, but that's enha potentially enhancing uh, what bad guys can do, the gene uh, editing types of things in CRISPR-Cas. We need to really pay attention to this, even though there hasn't been, as we've talked, on the homeland, there hasn't been an at attack for many years. Um, we got to watch out for watchman's fatigue, where you know, we just got to be alert to what uh, the challenges are and, and be sure that we can respond to those things. Um, and for the, the industrial base, we need to, you know, we're looking at um, the opportunities just not being there from a budgetary standpoint. And it's concerning mostly because, yeah, for the most part, we can divert our workforce to other, other activities. But if we lose that workforce and their expertise over time, it takes a decade to, to build that back up. So, All right. Well, lots of challenges, lots of promise ahead in this whole area. I think we're going to have to bring this to a close now. So let me thank today's guests. They were C.J. Johnson, Assistant Director of the Product Acquisition and Deployment Directorate at the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office. Dr. John Fisher is Director of the Chemical and Biological Defense Division at the Homeland Security Advanced Research Projects Agency. Major General Richard Gallant, Commander of Joint Task Force Civil Support at U.S. Northern Command. Jay Tilden, Associate Administrator and Deputy Undersecretary for Counterterrorism, Counterproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration. And Matt Shaw, Vice President and General Manager for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear and Explosive Defenses at the Battelle Memorial Institute. I'm Tom Temin, Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com. Use the search term Battelle. Thank you for listening to the panel discussion, National Preparedness, Countermeasures to Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear, and Explosive Threats, sponsored by Battelle on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Battelle. Listen. Do you hear that? That's the sound of an anthrax attack. It's completely silent. This is the sound of scientists at Battelle in the lab creating a vaccine that saves lives, stopping biological weapons. With Battelle, it can be done. Learn more at battelle.org forward slash vaccine.